Our text is Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. So only four verses today. Let's hear God's word. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our midst, uh, applying it to our minds, to our thoughts, and to our plans. We ask you to be with us now. Bless these people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The title of today's message is Confronting Hypocrisy. And I think I should uh, begin just briefly with a definition of hypocrisy. I'm not really going to go into a lot of detail here, um, but it probably is important to define it because um, I think it's thrown around quite freely and sometimes it's perhaps misapplied. Uh, I'll give you a definition that I think is okay, but then I'll give you kind of practical examples, which I think will be much more helpful. But uh, hypocrisy is what behavior a hypocrite exhibits. So professing beliefs, feelings, or virtues that you do not possess. And so essentially there's an aspect of pretending in hypocrisy. Uh, And I want to kind of repeat those things. There are beliefs. So those are what you believe. There are your actions, or it could be referred to as virtues, that you express either through your actions or by your words. I believe this. I do this. And then there are the feelings that go along with that, emotions. And so we can kind of falsely characterize things as hypocrisy, and it's quite common actually, especially you'll find in counseling when Uh, Someone is being counseled to love their wife. You know, a man is being counseled to love his wife. Well, but I don't feel like loving my wife. It would be hypocritical for me to love my wife. Well, where on earth do you get that as a definition of hypocrisy? That is not hypocrisy. And as a matter of fact, Jay Adams uses a really good illustration to prove that that is not hypocrisy. He said, I would be a hypocrite every day because I hate waking up. I hate getting out of bed, but I do it. I have to get out of bed. It's part of what makes me a responsible adult. And yet, is he a hypocrite because he gets out of bed even though he doesn't feel like getting out of bed? Of course not. And so that definition of hypocrisy, you just want to dispense with. It's a lie. But there are good definitions of hypocrisy, and I think I'll give you some illustrations now and later. Uh, But the main one I wanted to tell you is that emphasize the pretend aspect of it almost to the extent of self-deception. You pretend so well that you've fooled yourself. Most likely you haven't fooled many others, but you're successful at fooling yourself. Now, if we grow callous to sin and we 
express belief that our actions don't corroborate, then you're beginning to engage in hypocrisy. You say you believe this, but yet you routinely do this. Now, granted, we have a high standard, and this is where some non-Christians accuse all Christians of being hypocritical, because we say this is the standard. Well, no one can meet that standard, and so therefore we're all hypocrites. To an extent, I would say, okay, fine, I'll accept that label. I'm a hypocrite because I hold to a standard that I myself can't attain to. But that's this weakened, watered-down version of hypocrisy. Now, what would be hypocrisy is if I hold to this and I don't pursue it, I don't even come close, and my emotions, by my emotions, I show that I really don't care that I'm falling short of that goal which I've set for myself. If you're experiencing the shame of failure, the guilt of failure, and you go to God in that remorse and you say, God, please, I I don't want to engage in these actions anymore because they fall so far short of these beliefs, these core concepts of Christianity, then you're not a hypocrite. You're just a Christian. You're falling short of what you yourself have set up as a good standard in your life. But the main thing, though, is that you really want to apply the same standard that you're applying to yourself against everybody else. And if you're applying a higher standard to others and a lower one to yourself, then you're engaging in hypocrisy, judgmentalism. So with that, I'll kind of end that example or that description. But I want to give you the best example from Scripture that I have of hypocrisy. We have a pretty good one in our text today that we'll get into. But the best example of hypocrisy from Scripture you'll find in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And Phil will get to this through his life of David, but we know that'll be a while from now, so I don't, I don't uh, have any uh, shame in taking you there now. I'll have long forgotten by the time Phil gets to it. You probably won't. You women won't anyway. I know I, I, I forget anything a week later, and my wife remembers it years later, so... Now, in 2 Samuel 11, it starts with this. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. We then go into this whole sordid story of him inquiring after Bathsheba, uh, making introductions with Bathsheba, committing adultery with Bathsheba, impregnating her, having her husband come back to the city when when he realizes what he has done. He wants Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to sleep with his wife. He refuses to do so the first night. David brings him back the next night, gets him drunk, and Uriah refuses to go again, David confronts him on this and, and says, how can I go? The next two minutes of this sermon were lost to technical difficulties. Okay, do we have any sound now? Is it coming through? Okay, it's coming through. Okay. Well, I guess I should start over because you probably didn't hear anything I said. <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, So we're up to this point in the story where, where David has been confronted by Nathan with this story. And this is how David responds. 
David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king. And he goes on to, pr- to pronounce judgment upon David and specifically this son. This son would die that David was so longing, looking forward to Bathsheba having with him. And the baby did die. But uh, this is an example from a man who was after God's own heart, who wrote much of Scripture, just sordid, sordid tale of hypocrisy. That is, to me, the quintessential definition of hypocrisy that we have in the Bible. And it is that that we're going to talk about today, this sordidness of hypocrisy. Uh, First, I want to tell you a little bit, though, about Galatians, where we are and why we're here. Um, Galatians, as I've said, is about two things. It's about Paul's apostleship and the gospel message and his defense of the gospel message. Last week, we went through chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and we show how Paul went to Jerusalem and presented his gospel message that he's been preaching in Antioch for years to the uh, Jews that lived there, the apostles that were ruling there over the circumcision, and they accepted him. And so they saw that he was uh, preaching the truth of the gospel, and they embraced this. He did not allow Titus, who was with him, the Greek man, to be uh, compelled by uh, force to be uh, circumcised. And he won that out with these men. These men realized, okay, these Jews, these Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. And he also had an implied rebuke that the fact that these men were being held in too high of regard by the people. And so they were being put on pedestals. And he implied that that should not be done. That ought not to be done. And you can read it in, in verses 1 through 10. You can see where he insinuates that. Then we get to verse 11. And let me read verse 11 here. It's our first verse. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. And what he is doing is he is implicitly rebuking the Galatians for what they have refused to do with the Judaizers that they have been entertaining in their midst. They've been allowing these men to undermine the true gospel. And yet what he says is when Peter came to Antioch to attempt to do the same thing, I withstood him to his face. So he's about to get into the details of that, but he says you must have courage to do this. Now Paul does the right thing, and I'm going to give you the answer to the whole sermon, and then we'll get into little details. But he had to recognize what was going on. I'm convinced that Paul wasn't there when Peter came and this first started happening. Paul was probably preparing for his first missionary journey. So he was visiting all of these local Christians, probably gaining support in order to equip his people to go on his first missionary journey. And so that's probably why Peter came to Antioch, to kind of fill in for Paul, to participate in this, to see what's going on. And it's during this time that Peter loves this fellowship with the Gentiles, but then these uh, Jews from Jerusalem come who have been sent by James, and Peter's uncomfortable with this. He's doing things that he knows these men will be uncomfortable with, and so he stops it. But yet when Paul returns, he, he recognizes it immediately. He rebukes Peter publicly for what he's doing, and he corrects the situation. That's the sermon, so you know, I'm glad you came. Okay. 
but that was page one. So now I want to get into more details to, as to all this, why you need to do this, why you need to be trained in doing this. First, we are to recognize hypocrisy, right? Paul did here, but Peter hadn't. Peter was guilty of hypocrisy, and yet he had no clue that he was doing it. He was doing it without realizing what he was doing, apparently. Peter did not see his behavior as hypocritical. That's because we so exempt ourselves of sinful behavior. We are so quick to see sin in others and so slow to see sin in ourselves. Peter did not see what he was doing as sinful. He was just making peace, right? He was just accommodating a difficult situation, avoiding conflict. These are all good things he's doing. He's not being a hypocrite. He's just avoiding conflict that would have perhaps otherwise come. That's because he regarded himself as a standard here of right and wrong, of good and bad, of wisdom and foolishness. He was acting out of accord with Scripture, and he didn't realize it. He's just going along to get along, and he's making a mistake. And we, we, he shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. And we are very prone to this. I, I, I see myself doing it every day. I'm constantly trying to clip my thoughts off and bite my tongue because I'm saying things and I'm judging people based on not the Bible, but my own preferences, my own likes or dislikes. And that's wrong. That's me just being judgmental. That's me being harsh against other people that God has put on this earth that I'm to share it with fairly and equitably. Now, to the degree that people are clearly violating Scripture, yes, I agree. We see this. We can make sense of this. It, it, it assaults our worldview. It assaults us. And yet, too often, we want to take the moral high ground with, with whatever we find that we disagree with people on, and we want to be there first. We want to stick the flag in the ground. We're here first. We're right, you're wrong, because I'm here and you're there. But that's not the way it works. You've got to be willing to go to the Bible and justify what it is that you're saying. Oh, and, and that's good. If Christians would only do that more, I think we'd have a lot more growth, Christian growth, and frankly, a lot more constructive conflict, which we don't now have. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, I loved to draw pictures. And uh, now my kids all love to draw. I didn't tend to draw what they draw. Well, anime, I don't know, existed you know, 40 years ago when I was a kid. But uh, what I would do is I would take a piece of paper, just a normal piece of paper like this, and I would draw a straight line that way or that way or that way. And then on either side of the line, I would draw symmetrical lines and objects to where it was almost as if I wanted to make it look identical if you were to do that. Um, now, why wouldn't I just draw it once and put it in a mirror? I don't know, but it was fun. I would fill the table with pencils and paper and rulers and plastic things, and I would just do these in, in, uh, uh, complex drawings that, that did this. But I had a ruler that was wooden that had a metal edge to prevent the wood from getting distorted, but that metal edge bowed out at the edges and it went in in the middle. It drove me crazy because what I'd have to do is I'd have to start at the end with my pencil oriented this way, and then as I drew, I'd have to straighten it out, continue like this, and then weave it out again to get the pencil to go. So I had a crooked ruler, and it was hard for me to make a straight line. 
And I then discovered plastic rulers, and they're much easier to draw straight lines with, so I threw my wooden ruler away. But we all draw lines with the rulers of our mind, and all of our mind's rulers are crooked to some degree. To the degree that it's not informed by the Word of God, your ruler, your conscience, that by which you measure everything, is faulty. And you're unwilling to admit. That's a favorite ruler of yours. It's the only ruler you have that you can carry around. And so you're seldom honest in admitting exactly in what way it's faulty because you're so used to drawing lines that have that bow in it that that's straight to you. That's normal. So we all have different variations of that ruler in our consciences and we're, we have the means, God has given us the means to constantly refine and correct that ruler and the errors that it exhibits. And yet we're lazy too. I am. You're not. But I'm lazy. I don't want to spiritually grow. I don't want to root out sin in my life. I want to just take a, a smooth path through life that accommodates my weaknesses. I want a wife and children that accommodate me in my, oh, my sins are so small and insignificant. You know, they should just be glad to have me, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, they're, they're nothing to fuss over. So that's the way we are. Hypocrisy is like this. We, we've developed this double standard across the spectrum of our conduct, and we really don't realize it. Uh, I equate it with bad breath. You know when you're talking with someone with bad breath. They usually don't. I remember once I had just guzzled coffee at my desk and, and a coworker asked me a question. I went over and I responded to her question and she went like this. I mean, she just physically was repulsed and I thought, oh yeah, I have bad breath. Um, but anyway, that's way, the way hypocrisy is. We just grow so accustomed to it ourselves. We can easily detect it in others and sometimes we might want to point it out, but yet it's so difficult in ourselves. In, in uh, verse 12, Paul said this, before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Paul saw it immediately. Paul knew exactly why Peter was behaving as he was. He knew Peter's weaknesses. But did Peter? No. Peter might have known them, but he was not constantly aware of them, constantly f fighting against them, because that's hard. You know, he was just taking an easy path. He was actually enjoying himself. I kind of feel bad for Peter. He was up there enjoying this easy lifestyle that the Antioch Christians exhibited. And yet suddenly, when these people from Jerusalem showed up, it was like suddenly he was under the, uh, the magnifying glass. And he just felt totally uncomfortable. He was now being examined because now he's uh, uh, amongst these men who kind of have a different standard and he knew it. And I believe Paul might have known it too because I believe implicit in verse 12 is perhaps even a rebuke of James who is James the just down there helping run the church in Jerusalem because he says certain men came from James. James might have heard, oh, I hear Peter's up there associating with Gentiles in ways that we might not think is proper. You better get up there and check it out. Who knows? We don't know, but we know that James sent these men and Peter regarded them as there to look into his conduct. Now, what about, that, that explains Peter. What about the others? What about Barnabas? I mean, Barnabas has been Paul's friend for 10 years. Barnabas has helped Paul found the church in Antioch. 
it was Barnabas that went and got Paul and brought him to Antioch to help him manage this church that's growing like gangbusters. Barnabas falls sway to this hypocrisy. I mean, that is hard to believe. And yet it happened. So Peter obviously had a whole lot more persuasive impact upon these men than Peter even realized. Because Barnabas apparently just wanted to fit in, wanted to not offend Peter now. So now we've got everybody, everybody. And imagine it. Think about what this is all about. What is this all about? It's about associating with people, about eating with people. Peter's getting his lunch. He's up here. Yes, I want some of that. I want some of that. He's walking down. He's, oh, I would have, last week I would have sat with these Gentiles. <gasps> Let's call them the geeks. But now he's afraid to because over there are the jocks and they expect him to come and sit with them. And so he, he walks past the geeks to go sit with the jocks like he's done down in Jerusalem. Isn't it true? I mean, this is all about eating with people. It's all about associating with people. And yet, let me share something with you. And I'm kind of getting out of order, but I want to share this. Uh, there is, there is a, a phrase that Luther says, and I want to share it with you. He said this, God preserved the church by a single person. Paul alone stood up for the truth, for Barnabas and his companions were lost to him. Peter was lost to him. One lone person can do more in this conference than the whole assembly. So it wasn't just about eating together. The whole central component of Christianity, the fact that the wall of separation had been broken down between Jew and Gentile was being lost. And Paul would not have it, confronted them. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, there is an example in our recent Christian history of something similar, I believe. I want to talk a little bit about Barnabas and these other men. Why could they give in to uh, Peter and his hypocrisy so easily? Well, I have a, same, a similar question. The men that surrounded Jim Baker back in 1987 when he was running the PTL club, how could those men who knew that he was having this affair with this woman how could they continue to allow for this? Even cover it up, vote hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to buy her silence. How could they do this? They had gone so far adrift. Uh, Jim Baker at that point was such a hypocrite, praising the Lord on his PTL show, but having this liaison with this woman over here on the side that he wanted to hush-hush. The next year after this, 1987, Jim Baker's PTL went up in flames. The next year after this, there was a man named Marvin Gorman, who was a, also an uh, evangelist, and he also went down in flames. Similar story, infidelity. Now, during this period, Jimmy Swaggart went on the Larry King Live show, and he described Jim Baker as a cancer in the body of Christ. And he also ranted and raved about Marvin Gorman. Well, Marvin Gorman took matters into his own hands. He'd heard that Jimmy Swaggart also did this type of thing. So he hired a private investigator to follow Jimmy Swaggart around. And sure enough, very quickly, got very compromising photographs of Jimmy Swaggart in the company of a well-known prostitute and published them. So Jimmy Swaggart's ministry went down in flames. But he had had the audacity to go into such a secular form as Larry King Live and accuse Jim Baker of 
committing these atrocities when he himself was doing it as well. That is hypocrisy. Uh, I have a couple more examples. I mean, they're kind of salacious. I can't help but share them. Uh, when President Clinton was involved with Monica Lewinsky and he was under the public scrutiny because it had all come out, he was visited by his spiritual confidant, Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson's personal assistant at that point was visibly pregnant with his baby out of wedlock. Jesse Jackson had a wife that he should have been faithful to, and yet here he is traveling the country with his personal assistant who's pregnant with his child. Uh, Ted Haggard, just four years ago, head of the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, publicly hostile, really, even to, to uh, all homosexuality, bisexuality. I mean, in interviews, you can see him in the interviews being visibly upset and emotional about it, and yet for two years was in contact with a male prostitute. It just, just the, the, the degree to which we must divorce ourselves as Christians. And I'm, and I'm not sure that these men were or weren't Christians, but yet they said they were Christians. And so I'll take it on their word for now. But yet to the degree that they could separate their lifestyle, their beliefs from their actions and from their emotions. And the men that had to exist in their circle of influence that allowed this to happen. In a a smaller way, we have the same thing going on here. These same men that are in Barnabas's circle, Peter's circle, they're all giving in. They're not going with the word of God. They're going with this cult of personality that Paul himself had warned about in verses 1 through 10. So we ourselves are susceptible to this. We can easily make Phil into a a uh, something higher than the Bible, an authority over the Scripture. And we can uh, want to embrace what he believes as opposed to what the Word of God says, that we should all understand, that we should study. We go to him with questions or doubts. Phil, what about this? And I mean, I, I admit, I've gone to him a lot over the years. You know, what about this? What about that? And you know, Phil, you don't get a paragraph back. You get a miniature book back. And you then have all kinds of Scriptures to go to. But do any of us do that? Oh, okay, that's the answer, you know? I mean, that's what we want. We just want the answer. We don't want to go through that study that it took to do that. And I can remember some of the guys that really struggled with that back when we formed Dominion. Phil would not want to give them the answer. He would just give them this, give them that, and they'd get frustrated. Just tell me the answer. But no, I mean, that's not wise to just give you the answer. We should be giving you biblical answers that allow you then to go forage for truth for yourself in the word of God. Now, granted, there's not always time for that. You must act on truth. And so if there's fear there that you're going to do something unwise, we'll certainly talk to you about that. But we must all learn to be fishermen in this regard. Delve into the word of God and seek the truth for ourselves. Anything that we sense that, it, and I, we really appreciate it when people have come and said, you know, Phil, or you know, Rod, you said this, or you did that. Uh, where, how do you justify that from Scripture? Don't feel that you are uh, in any way attacking us when you do that. We want to hear that. And, and, and granted, we're human. We might instinctively want to say, ah, oh, you know, oh, I'm right. What are you talking about? We don't want to have to prove things to you. We want you to accept them. Like I said, I'm lazy. But don't allow that to be the answer that you walk away with. Make sure that we can show you from Scripture why we're doing things. If that's what we say is we're doing because it's in Scripture. Okay, now, why did Paul see it? Peter didn't see it. The men that were with Peter didn't see it. 
And yet Paul instantly sees it. Why? He's been there and done that. I mean, Jesus had such harsh words for the Pharisees, and that's what Paul had been. He was one of these men that Jesus is talking to in this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Jesus used the word hypocrite with scribes and Pharisees a lot, quite a lot. So hypocrisy and pride were very, very common amongst the Pharisees. Of course, they were unaware of it, but Peter, when he was saved, suddenly just, oh. And who's, who's less uh, tolerant of a smoker than a former smoker, right? So the same thing is true here. He can sniff hypocrisy out anywhere. He knows it when he sees it, and, and he is going to deal with it. He's not going to let it go on. So now, first, recognizing hypocrisy. Believe it or not, that was only really point one in this. Point two is rebuking it. So now, what do you need to be able to do to rebuke a hypocrite? There are three things that you need to rebuke a hypocrite. First, they're all, they all start with C. You need confidence that this is clearly an example of hypocrisy. You need to be confident in that knowledge. Paul is absolutely positive that what he is now witnessing is hypocrisy. Second, you have to have a concern that this example of hypocrisy is damaging to the church. After all, we don't go after every sin. It's just pointless. You go after the big sins. You go after the sins that are potentially causing damage in the church to individuals. And so he is here serious in his concern that this is a serious sin. Third, courage. You might have this knowledge. You know that it's there. You know that it's serious. But I don't want to mess with it. He's just, Peter's just way too big, too powerful for me to mess with. We face this all the time at my work. You know, I mean, who's going to tell the emperor he has no clothes? It's just not wise. And so we have conversations like this all the time at, at your place of business. I'm sure the same. You know, who exactly is going to tell the AVP that he's wrong in this regard? It, it takes courage to do that. You better have confidence and concern nailed before you think to exercise that courage because you could be wrong. Now, the question is this. In addition to these three, th- these three things, what do you think you will need to be successful at rebuking a person for being a hypocrite? Think about that. So far, all I've talked about is something that's in you. It's in you. You have this knowledge. You have this concern for the body. You have this courage. But if you don't have a relationship with that person, I'm telling you right now, they are going to retaliate against you very quickly. So you'd better have their trust. And that's what he has with Peter. Now, granted, it is a, it is a fairly shallow trust. He's, he's only met him a few times. But he has Peter's respect. And he's earning his trust by what he's doing, by what he's confronting Peter on. You will be accused of something. Anytime that we confront anybody on anything, the response from an immature believer who doesn't want to hear what you're saying will be attack back, attack you in retaliation. But, 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 you're like this, you're like that. 
Uh, when I was a kid, my mom loved uh, country western songs, and there is that song, Harper Valley PTA. Everybody knows that song. It's very easy to sing. You know, and it's about this uh, single mom who's being accused by the, the board at the PTA of wearing her skirts too short and being an unfit mother for this girl. So she goes to the meeting and runs everybody down because she knows all their dirty secrets. And so she runs down the list and then leaves vindicated, right? Because everybody's as evil as me. Maybe I shouldn't be wearing these mini skirts and going out to the bars or whatever, but nor should you all be doing that stuff. So that is the, the, the temptation that we face. Okay, now I've got my confidence in the truth. I've got my concern for the church. I've got my courage. Ooh, but, you know, they're going to they're gonna really bite me, you know. And, and that's why the church now lacks any, any uh, regularity of rebuking people. Uh, we are wimps. The modern church is just a big wuss, and they will not confront people on their sin. And frankly, it might be because they themselves are immersed in it, but part of it is just they don't want to go there. They don't want to get into those conflicts. They don't want to cause problems. They don't want to rock the boat. So let's dig in a little bit more about this, these three things. I've given you them, and I've asserted them, but I want to kind of prove them. So first is confidence. Paul has confidence that what he's doing is right, and remember, Paul is a big A apostle. He was made an apostle by Jesus Christ himself, probably for this very reason, that he was there and did that, and now he can be an example to uh, uh, Peter and these others that really hadn't been at that height of popularity and respect within the Jewish community, such that they suffered the ignominy of being knocked off that pedestal. Everyone is in awe of Peter, except who? Paul. Paul is not in awe of Peter. I, and I believe Peter was perhaps somewhat in awe of Paul. And in the book of Acts, where this occurs, uh, really Peter only occurs one time more at the Jerusalem Council, and then he's never mentioned again. Then it's all about Paul, all about his missionary journeys. And so just as Paul kind of supplanted Barnabas in, in popularity and in significance in the book of Acts, Paul also supplants Peter in, in that. And I believe that's because Paul was the one that was really carrying forward the modern Christian model of what churches were all about. And God had done that for a purpose. He wanted this former Pharisee to be leading that charge. Now, confidence, concern. Paul's concern could hardly be greater. He has been in Antioch now these years. He's probably, in his mind, worked out this whole uh, systematic theology, frankly, for how the future of the Christian church is going to be played out. And yet he's not really had a chance to bring all these men on board with that. But remember what I just went through in verse 1 through 10. He'd gone to Jerusalem. He'd had their buy-in. He doesn't have to share with them everything and get them to buy into everything. No, he's up in Antioch. He's carrying this forward. He's planning these missionary journeys. He's going to conquer the, the uncircumcised world for Christ. And that's his job. That's what they decided on just, just a bit earlier. Last but not least is courage. So we have confidence. We have this uh, uh, concern that he has, and now we have courage. Uh, Paul is alone here. He has no confidence. He has no other people that appear to be helping him in his battle against Peter and these others concerning this hypocrisy. And this is where I'd said that quote earlier. This is where I was going to say this, that God preserved the church through Paul in this. 
I want to share with you another man who perhaps did something similar in time, and it's Athanasius. Athanasius was a bishop in Alexandria, and that was one of the few major cities that were large uh, cities that were uh, foundational in Christianity. And yet, at the time that he was a bishop, Arianism was just so popular. People, and, and you know, there's a lot of scripture, there's a lot of doubt, especially in the early church, as to just how Christ and God, I mean, what is this? It took a long time for that to get worked out. And so they could go to verses that seemed to indicate that there was a time when Jesus was not. And these Arians clung to those verses, saying, Jesus is not God. He's not God like God is. There is God, the Father, and then there's Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They're kind of different. They're fundamentally different from God. That was the Arianism heresy. And yet at that point, it, it wasn't even widely accepted as heresy. It was the prevailing view in the church. And so Athanasius fought against that. He did not believe that to be correct based on his understanding of Scripture. So for 46 years, he was on again, off again, the bishop of Alexandria. For 20 of those 46 years, he was banished by the church. He was not allowed to be in Alexandria. And so they would banish him, and he would just continue writing and arguing and politicking against Arianism. And at one point, one of the men who was his friends, who was one of these go-along-to-get-along guys, said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you in this. And he said, then Athanasius is against the whole world. It didn't matter to him. He was right, and he was going to prove it. And, and, and time has shown that he was right. He was right in his understanding of who Jesus Christ was and how the union within the Godhead uh, was a mystery that we can't understand but that we must embrace. Now, when I got to this point last summer, I realized that what I've shared with you, these three things, this, uh, uh, the uh, concern that he has, I keep forgetting them, I should remember them, the confidence that he has in the truth, the concern that he has for the church, and the courage to do it. Now, I know I seldom share movie, you know, uh, metaphors with you, but I have another one, so if you indulge me. Uh, but anyway, who here has seen The Wizard of Oz? Has everybody seen The Wizard of Oz? Who has not seen The Wizard of Oz? Wow. Someone has not seen The Wizard of Oz. But, well, this, this metaphor should work, though, then. Okay, now, there is a main character in The Wizard of Oz, the young girl named Dorothy, and Dorothy flies off in this storm to land in Oz, and uh, who are the three other main characters that she meets along the way? Who's the first one? Scarecrow. scarecrow. And what is it that the Scarecrow lacks and wants? A brain. He wants a brain. And because he doesn't have a brain, what does he lack? He lacks confidence, right? He's just so wishy-washy. He can't decide on anything. I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to do that. I really don't know. I don't know what to do. So he lacks confidence. He lacks knowledge and wisdom. Then we run into who? The Tin Man. And what does the Tin Man lack? A heart. And because he lacks a heart, what does he not have squared away? compassion. He doesn't know what to care for or what not to care for. He cries at, at the drop of a hat. He, he, he doesn't understand what's going on in his world. He can't relate. Remember, he's trying to step past like little bugs and stuff because he doesn't know whether he's supposed to love little bugs or not. So he's all messed up emotionally. He's a wreck emotionally. He doesn't know what to do. So he lacks this balanced compassion for 
his world, for who he's interacting with. And then we have, of course, the lion. And what does the lion lack? Courage. The lion lacks courage. He's a wit. He's a wuss. He's a wimp. He will not go after what he wants. He will not stand up for his friends when he's, when he's confronted with that opportunity. He's just all puffing stuff, right? He gets out there and roars at Dorothy, and then she smacks him because uh, he had scared her friends, and then he cries, and he cowers away. But if you think of each of those three, that's exactly what we have. He needed a brain. Paul needed knowledge in order to understand what was going on. He did that immediately. He knew it. He needed the heart to be concerned for what was going on. He had to want to correct it. And with that, you have to have a love for people, a desire for people. And then he had to have the courage to do it. He had to follow through on what he knew to be right. And so he did that as well. He had to know what was right. He had to love what was right. And he had to do what was right. And he did all three of those things. Now, there were uh, three R's recognize hypocrisy, uh, rebuke hypocrisy, and we've covered those. And now we get to what I call remedying hypocrisy, the impact of it. And so Paul does that really in one fell swoop. And what I want to ask you is this, was it proper for Paul to rebuke Peter publicly? Because it's very obvious that he rebuked Peter publicly. He didn't take him aside. He rebuked him right there. Was it proper? I have a phrase that I learned relative to business and management and stuff like that. And the phrase is this, praise publicly, rebuke privately. So in other words, you don't run people down in the midst of your work environment or at some public meeting. If they've made a mistake, even if it's obvious that there was a mistake made, as long as it's not too bad, you deal with it later. You talk to them privately the next day. You say, hey, you know, this is what happened. They might get defensive initially. But you really, as the manager, as the responsible party there that kind of saw what happened, you've got to confront them on that. You've got to uh, show them that what they did was wrong. But privately, that way they can learn from this. They can go forward and not be publicly shamed or humiliated. But yet, in this instance, that can't happen. Why? Because it was such a public sin that was taking place. This hypocrisy was done before the whole church. It was devastating the whole church. You could imagine these Gentiles were puzzled. Why doesn't Peter give us the time of day now? He just walks right over past our geek table to the jock table. Why does he do that? Why is he turning his nose up? Once again, due to technical difficulties, the remaining eight minutes of the sermon were lost. Please refer to the PDF for the rest of the sermon.